Lyrics of the Hub, your fan cast, brought to you by TV Series Hub. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Nurks of the Hub. I'm your host for the day, Heaven, followed by my partner in crime, Alex. Hello. And our very special guest for the day, Mickey Fisher. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey. We are super jazzed to have you on the podcast. We are both really big fans of Reverie and of Mars and, of course, Extant. So without... So much... Yeah. Without further ado, we really we want to start right from the beginning and get some more details on Extant. I know you have chatted with a few people about this, and that's kind of what gets me on my first quote you mentioned in one article. You quoted David Mamet from the film The Edge, what one man can do, another man can do. And you very clearly have done that. And not only that, but you've been willing to share how you've done that with other people which is just incredibly awesome. Well, you know, I really, when I was working for all those years trying to break in, I was always uh, so hungry for any inside information that I could get, anything that helped like demystify the process. And so, you know, for the first God, 10 years of that, it's almost, yeah, almost probably longer, like almost 15 years of that, it was really about like, you know, picking up books and reading articles and anything I could to, to find out what other people um, were doing and what their process was. And then, you know, around, gosh, I mean, whatever the sort of birth of podcasts, there were all these podcasts, like, uh, there was one called, like, Sam and Jim Hollywood, I think, and and then there started to be the Nerdist Writers podcast, and um, and I would listen to those things, you know, all the time, uh, and just looking for anything I could apply to my own situation and to, and to help me, and so after I broke in with Extant, sort of at the end of it, when I had a, a moment to, like, stop and take a breath and go, okay, well, what did I learn that I can help pass on and, uh, and, and, and help to sort of pull back the curtain for some other people who are in the same position I was in. And, and I think that's like, I, I mean, I, I don't think I, to me, it felt like a responsibility to do it too, you know, and I, and I want to continue to do that. And I still, I follow a lot of people on Twitter, um, who are, who are of the, the film Twitter community or screenwriting community, who are constantly passing on like free knowledge. In fact, I just pulled up one the other day. There's a writer named Monica Beletsky who had, who basically like got her whole process in starting a new pilot. Uh, and then somebody very generously took all of her tweets and made it into like an infograph kind of thing. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. And I was finishing a feature the other day and I pulled her thing up because to look at it and go, okay, what are the thing? what are the things that I am not doing that she does? And could I try that? And is it helpful? And, um, so I think that uh, I think there's a really great supportive community out there for that sort of thing. Those of you listening to this podcast, you're doing yourself a favor just by listening right now. <laughs> As a screenwriter myself, um, I've read your manifesto on Extant and the one on Reverie, and I found them relatable uh, and really fascinating. And one thing that I think is you know one of the most incredible things about your journey in particular is how not only are you the creator of Extant, but you went on to then become the showrunner for it. And that is, as I'm sure you can talk about, almost unheard of in the industry. You know, I could only think of, you know, on the one hand, the number of times something like that has happened. So that's like a dream job. And I would love to ask you, you know, what was it like being the showrunner for your own show? And was it as difficult? And how prepared were you for that? Well, well, first I will say I wasn't actually the showrunner of it. I mean, oh, I, was the I was the creator and executive producer of it. Um, but we had a showrunner, uh, this guy Greg Walker, for the first season, uh, and then Liz Kruger and Craig Shapiro for the second season. I really functioned. I I helped run the show with them in a way, sort of uh, 
being at their right hand. Like both both groups of people, uh, both showrunners, sort of graciously allowed me to you know, to have a, a a voice. You know that was uh, a, you know a big voice in helping drive the stories and to rewrite things. But you know at the end of the day, I have to say that those people were the ones who had to make the final final decisions. You know, and oftentimes saving myself. So so. So I really was a, a, you know, a a big partner in those things and a part of every aspect of the show from casting to the design meetings to all those things and really was able to be there throughout. Um, And so to that part of your question, it was uh, it was it was like a going to a crash course in in making television. (laughs) Uh, I got to see it uh, firsthand, up close and personal at a a very high level, um, you know, right off the bat. Because a lot of people when they're breaking in, a sort of traditional way is. You know, working your way in as a PA and uh, uh, and working your way up into as a writer's assistant um, or an executive assistant, and then you get hired as a staff writer and you're sort of working your way up the ladder. Um, and I took the uh, uh, outside circuitous route, um, making my own micro budget features and writing and directing a bunch of theater um, and gain and building skills that were uh, applicable to this. Um, but, but coming at it from a sort of roundabout way, I spent 20 years kind of off in the wilderness writing and honing my skills and doing my own thing. Um, so there were some things that were, um, right off the bat that were similar to, to all those things, which is, you know, you're putting on a show at the end of the day, you're putting on a show, you have to articulate a vision to the team and you, uh, you know, you have to have a vision and be able to articulate that vision, uh, top to bottom to, you know, to first of all, to the people, the partners that you bring on, like the producers, uh, the directors, the, you know, the studios, the networks, um, and then down to, you know, the, the, the props person and the, uh, um, you know, wardrobe and makeup and hair and all those things, you know, you have to be able to, to articulate that vision. This is the show. This is the style of the show. This is, uh, these are the themes at the heart of it, you know? And, and, um, so I got to see how all that, uh, happens at that level with, you know, when I first time out of the gate with, you know, Steven Spielberg and Halle Berry. (laughs) So I got to to watch it happen, you know, like I got to be a part of it and I got to also sort of learn from it in a way that was, uh, that was invaluable. I mean, in both experiences now with Reverie too, like I've, I've learned so much. I still feel like I know a very small percentage of the job, but, but more every time. Well, you really have done, despite the fact that you definitely took a different route to get to where you're at, you've definitely done quite a few different positions within the film industry. I mean, it's it's not like you didn't jump from writing a script to being an executive producer. You definitely had not only a ton of research, which has very clearly played its part, but the practice of working in, like you said, theater, doing background stuff, working with makeup people, and it uh, makes for a much more dynamic executive producer, I should think. Yeah, definitely. I think... I- I mean, I, I, I'm to get all the way back to starting. Uh, I went to school for musical theater originally to be an actor, and there were things I learned in my very first acting class um, at the Conservatory of Music in Cincinnati um, that I carry with me, and I still think about every time I sit down to write. I mean, in that very first acting class, we were studying like the Meisner questions, uh, like uh, you know, who am I? What do I want? Why does it have to be now? Like all those sorts of things. They were sort of the basic questions of drama. And even though I was learning them uh, from an actor's standpoint, I really carried those into the writing. And I think about those every time I sit down to write a scene, like who, who is this character? What do they want? What happens if they don't get it? Why does it have to be now? Those are all like, those are the really basic questions uh, uh, of drama. And so I think all those different um, 
things along the way. That's something I brought from acting that carried through. And then when I was, you know, directing theater and, or like in, you know, children's theater in Kentucky, you know, you still have to be able to explain, uh, you know, like the story to, you know, to a kid, you have to be able to like, um, you know, to, 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 to write something, to write a play that is going to play for, you know, school kids as well as adults. And to do that, you have to really like think, you know, simple emotional uh, movements. And so that kind of stuff I brought from that. So, yeah, I think all that training really like uh, came to fruition and came together uh, in this new job. So riffing off of what you were saying about, you know, asking these questions, you know, who am I? I notice and I love this about a lot of your work, like technology is almost a character in a lot of your stories, especially, you know, in Extant and Reverie. Um, and you are an incredible storyteller that I find is, you know, very true to the core of science fiction, which is, you know, addressing how technology, you know, will change in the future, but really problems that we have now using technology to highlight those things. Um, so how does, you know, technology play a role um, in your mind as a, as a opponent and a, and a character? That, I mean, that's a great question, I, and I appreciate that for as well, too. Um, I, you know, I'm an early adopter. I'm one of those people that I am the first to have. I have so many gadgets around our house. Uh, like, I ha- I, I, uh, I'm a big proponent of technology, and I'm very sort of optimistic about technology and the ways that it can make our, life, our lives better. Um, and that started when I was a kid. Like, my parents were the first to, you know, to buy, like, the, the, the VHS uh, you know, and, uh, VCR and they picked the right one too. Yeah. They did big Betamax. Uh, so, uh, we're like, we were the first people I knew to have a player and sort of those. So I kind of grew up like always interested in it. Um, and then as I, as I started writing, I also think, you know, we're living in this, in this day and age right now where we are really living through this period of time that a lot of science fiction, fiction writers have written about um, this sort of like emergence of artificial intelligence. And, right. uh, and now we're in this, like, you know, with CRISPR and all these things that are happening um, that are going to fundamentally change the way that we live and even can change us on a, you know, on a genetic level on a, uh, and so um, with that come all these great questions of uh, what are the moral and ethical uh problems uh of that and so when you start thinking about what is you know what does this technology do what are the potential pitfalls of that how do you dramatize that um that's the stuff that really gets me excited like i i'm constantly reading like you know wired or mashable and these things and i read a lot of tech blogs and um and and reading about this new stuff and my brain is always the first to go okay what's the What's the potential problem with that, uh, and and who's the character that could exemplify that, uh, and how do you and how do you tell that story? And I, I mean, I think that science fiction does a lot of great stuff, and, and it can it can tackle like complex social issues. And um, but the thing that I've always been drawn to, I think that's always interested me, are those those sort of like basic human questions. How do we hold on to this thing that's special about us when you know technology is changing us on a fundamental level all the time? That is fascinating, um, and you know, it makes me think. Gee, I should do that. <laughs> so thank you for, you know, giving those little insights. You stay up to date on all the technologies. So your, you know, most recent show, Mars, is fascinating not only about the subject matter, but also how it changes the industry. It is a dramatization and documentary in the same show in the same time space. And I just have to ask you about that. When you're in the writer's room breaking down the story for Mars, how do you separate, you know, how much time you're going to leave for the documentary versus the story? 
is there a person in charge of, okay, well, we've got 45 minutes of story and let's do 15 minutes of document. How do you cut back and like, who does that? That's insane. <laughs> no, that was a really interesting, uh, in, uh, interesting process. I, so I came on to that. I, I, you know, Extant was canceled I think in that early that fall of that year. Um, and then I got a call that, that, that uh, Nat Geo was doing the show called Mars with Imagine Entertainment. And, um, and they had put together a writer's room and they were, um, they were looking for a couple extra writers to, to, to fill out the room. Um, and when I heard what the concept was that was really going to be this sort of half narrative, half documentary, that was the thing that excited me the most. Because how often do you get a chance to, to be part of something that's sort of a new, a new sort of art form? you know, a new way of telling stories. Um, cause I mean, and not say like, you know, brand new, there have been things that have done it before, but like the concept of that, the narrative portions of the show, we're going to cover this, you know, the first humans to live and work on Mars. Uh, and then the documentary sections were going to be about, you know, how do we get there? Who are the people working here right now? Uh, I just thought that was like, it's just a, a you know, thrilling prospect, uh, pulling that off. Um, and it turns out it's really hard. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so there were a few, uh, uh, you know, drama writers in the room. Um, and then there was a, uh, one of the executive producers was in the room, this guy, Jonathan Silverberg, who was a documentary producer. And, um, and so everybody was kind of doing, doing, both both duties like he was really helping to drive the narrative stories we were helping to pitch like okay what are the types of documentary stories we would be interested in telling um and to the point of actually even kind of scripting like a hypothetical uh documentary pods that would go with the script because the one thing that we wanted to do was that those two sides have to speak to each other in the episode you right. know and so like i wrote the third episode which was about um which which, which was really about like the the sort of uh you know, like the mental and emotional uh, pro problems of how do you keep these people that are going to be living on this planet uh, far away from home? You can't just grab a cab and go back home. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you're there. And so if you break down mentally, if you break down emotionally, you have to be able to solve those problems. If you have interpersonal problems, uh, you have to be able to get over those things. And so we were writing a story about everybody being pushed to their limits mentally and emotionally and, and physically. Um, and then we had to look at, okay, what are the documentary stories we could tell that would kind of go along with that? And one of the things that, you know, NASA's doing here was they had this high seas program that they took all these, uh, you know, all these potential, you know, uh, astronauts, potential, uh, you know, Mars voyagers and put them under living in this complex underneath the, you know, volcano on, on, in Hawaii. Uh, you know, kept them there for like a year, right? And so I think that's what I want. So like, giving you sort of like broad face, they're, they're uh, broad, broad strokes that are probably inaccurate, but that was the basic idea, right? And so I had to script out segments of this documentary that would uh, go along with the kinds of things we were talking about in uh, in the narrative side as well. And then they would have to go off and shoot those things, but then whatever they shot, they shot, and they would have to come back and make it work wondering how you had gotten involved with nat geo on that one being uh, also a very tech person i love to find new gadgets and stuff too but i also love reading national geographic and to me it was just the perfect marriage of putting your sci-fi skills with science and the actual potential real future which sci-fi kind of is anyway but i'm wondering how you had to how much research did you have to do to really get the the science and what's truly possible into your script in addition to the documentary part? Yeah, tons. I mean, they, that's one of the mandates from Nat Geo is it has to be 
realistic. And so they really, from the beginning, before I came on, they had they had optioned this book, um, and that was really you know how we'll live on Mars, and we were really were uh, looking at SpaceX and NASA and. Um, how are people talking about how we're actually going to do this? Um, and too, because, you know, with accident, like it opens up with her, she's on this, like she's living alone uh, on a space station. And, uh, there's, there is a section that's sort of like, you know, microgravity, but then there's also mostly, she's just sort of walking around doing experiments. <laughs> so it's very not hard science. Um, but, but with, with Mars, you know, it's coming out after the Martian. And that was very famous for being like rooted in, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and fact checked by a lot of people on the internet along the way. As he was, so it had to be very, uh, very grounded in the real thing. And, uh, and so I learned more about it than I ever thought I would over those few months in the, in the writer's room. And I, and I loved it. It was like, it was a, uh, it was an amazing education and, and it gave me a whole new respect for, you know, for what people, the people who work at NASA and, and SpaceX, what they're trying to pull off. You know, I seriously loved Mars and I was a little sad for the show for it to not have been on like a major network i feel like i wanted more people to see it so much that i didn't even realize there was a season two and i was mad when i realized it because i would have been the heck out of it before talking to you <laughs> well of course i wasn't involved in the seat in the second season i mean i moved on after the first season it took me a while to get back yeah so so i was really just involved in those first in those first six episodes well, forget about it then <laughs> i could be right along with you uh, uh to catch up oh i guess i guess you probably wouldn't have been told it didn't come out on hulu like the like for the first season did so Perhaps that's why it got lost in the mix. Well, yeah. One thing I really liked about the series was how, you know, the dramatization portion really humanized the hypothetical of the documentary. And I just thought that was a really cool thing. So thank you for, you know, bringing those first six episodes to us. And we won't tell anybody about those second six. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching. I mean, I was really, I was, I was really proud to be part of that team. There were some great writers in there. This guy, Andre Bormanis, who had been, uh, he had, had, been a writer on uh, Star Trek, and he had also written for the new um, uh, Cosmos, you know, series that had been out. And so, and there were just Neil a bunch really, yeah, exactly. That he had written for that one too, and now he writes for Orville. Um, oh, I love that show. Yeah, it's it's a really fun show, and so I think there were a lot of people, um, you know, on that team who who um, kind of, they were just really fun and imaginative, and it was it's. It was like one of those jobs where every day you're like, I can't believe we're getting paid to do this, <laughs> you know, to, talk about, to talk about this stuff. I wonder if Reverie was the same way, because for me, that was such a new world and a really fresh concept on sci-fi. And I feel like, I mean, maybe I'm, things show up differently on screen, of course, than they are behind the camera. But it looked like it would have been so fun. The cast was so great. Uh, mm. Was it the same experience? Was it a completely new uh, it was a completely new ball game being on NBC as opposed to CBS. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a whole new ball game. I, I mean, I feel like I'd learned a lot from those two seasons of accent. I had a couple jobs in between. I did a, you know, like that I did Mars, but then I'd also had a little, uh, uh, I did a season of the strain, the final. The strain. Um, and so I'd learned a ton from like working, uh, with those guys and working, uh, for Carl, Carlton Cuse and, um, and, and so it took a lot of that into that experience. So in the meantime, as I was, as I was working in the room on the strain, I took Reverie out, sold it. Um, and, uh, and, and it was kind of a different process too. Not, not only was it NBC, but it was also, you know, with accident, we went straight to series within, uh, with Reverie. We, um, I went through the whole process where we sold the pilot, 
Um, and then they, the, the, they, they ordered the pilot to be produced. And so I went to Vancouver, we shot it. Um, and then went through that whole sort of like rat race to get your pilot, your show picked up the series after that. Um, so I just got to go through that whole gauntlet and see what that was like. Um, which is interesting because a lot of people, you know, when Exxon went straight to series, a lot of people were saying that, you know, it's kind of a bummer because, you know, like when you're, when you're doing your pilot, you have time to really, um, fix things, you know, if a relationship isn't working or if it's miscast, you can right. go back to recast, you really can kind of recalibrate things and you really don't get that when you go straight to series, you just have more time to figure it out. And what I learned is that is not the case at all when you're making a pilot because, the minute they, the minute you get the call and they say, "Hey, we're ordering your pilot. You know, we want you to go make it." Um, you find yourself in this like mad scramble for talent, for directors and actors, and 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 you know, lots to shoot on and crews, and and so it really is you're making all these decisions really quick and hoping that there is some sort of magical alchemy that creates a show that people want to watch. Um, and so that was so that was all different. Definitely was different being on on a new network. And I had an, another showrunning partner in this one. This, our showrunner, official showrunner was Thompson Georgie, um, who had worked on Bates Motel. He'd started way back in NYPD Blue and had run The Mentalist for a number of years. And he and I, I got along great. He was like a really great creative partner. And I think we were very much in sync with the kind of stories we wanted to tell and the things that we were excited about. And I was really um, – I was really glad to have a partner like that, somebody who was, you know, creative and, and ready to take risks. And uh, but yeah, the, but the cast was it, good. To go back to your other question, having like the the cast itself, super fun. They were uh, they're all nuts. They're all like, <laughs> and we had a great time. It, I mean, it's like when you're in Vancouver and you're you're making a pilot. And it's the middle of March and it's raining every day. And you're holed up in the this place called the Sutton Hotel, um, and, and you know, and you're going out every. It's it's a little like camp. And you really get to know people very quickly, and you forge really strong relationships and really strong bonds. And um, and I was really really grateful for that that time with those people. And you're also kind of up against impossible odds. It's like it is like your team going to the Super Bowl because you're all putting all this work, your blood, <laughs> tears, and then you're just waiting. Like, are we going to get ordered to the series? And so you're going through this whole like emotional roller coaster too. Yes, we got ordered a series, so we're all thrilled and elated. Now we get to do the show, and and then the show airs, and then it's like we're waiting, 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 and oh no, we got canceled. And that's a bummer. Uh, so so you're really like you're kind of like a family going through all these ups and downs together. This podcast is brought to you by TVSeriesHub.tv, your site for entertainment news, reviews, and interviews. Now back to the show. You really, I would be really surprised if you had wanted to recast after the pilot for that one. I felt like your characters had such great chemistry, such great timing with each other. I love that uh, Sendhill, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, moved on over to New Amsterdam. I hadn't seen him before your show. He's great alongside of Sarah, Sarah Sahali. Sarah Sahali. I got so bad at names. <laughs> <laughs> Who was just fantastic. And I'm still disappointed about news of the cancellation. I'm wondering if there's any chance of seeing more of it. Is it, are you still shopping by chance or are you moving on? No, nah, I mean, I, sadly, I think it's over. I, I, ultimately, there just weren't enough people to tune in. I mean, we've seen it a couple of times in the last few years with things like Timeless, you know, Timeless got oh. renewed a couple of times, right? Oh. And, and they actually had a movie to, to finish out. But I think... In those cases, there was a really vocal, uh, rabid fandom that that kept it alive, and 
And I think, you know, unfortunately, we just didn't have enough of that uh, going for us. And so, and then NBC Universal, they own the the rights to the show. And I think there wasn't any, there was never a moment where anybody was like, hey, maybe this would work on sci-fi better, you know. Uh, but also because I think, you know, it's it's a it, it, it's not an inexpensive show. It wasn't like super expensive, but, you know, you have to create a new world every week. Yeah, um, right. Thing, yeah, exactly. And so I think it was one of those situations where... Um, yeah, was, there was nobody who was like banging down the door to you know say let's take it somewhere else. So unfortunately, I, I always wonder if people that aren't big time sci fi nerds like myself maybe just don't understand the concept when they see it. Sometimes you know some sci fi shows it takes you get the first season to kind of introduce everybody, introduce the story, get the get the world out there, and then set season two. Sometimes things pick up and go nuts. And that's when you kind of get to like the the meat of it. So yeah. just, I'm really sorry for m- you and for me that <laughs> we don't have more of it. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I really do. I, I I think you're totally right. I think you know if you look at something like Fringe on yes. Fox, Fringe really had a chance to to really find its audience and keep its audience and build. And then a lot of things we're seeing now, like a show goes on to Netflix, uh, you know, after their second or third season, well, then what happens in the, you know, in the interim between seasons on broadcast, like people are finding it and catching up to it on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And so it was something mm-hmm. like, this isn't a genre show, something like Shameless actually built their audience because of those Netflix viewers caught right. up in time for whatever, you know, seventh rate season of Shameless. Um, and I think that, you know, that's something we didn't really have because, you know, when, when you have one season, if you're not really given the chance to grow that audience, and you know, unfortunately we didn't go to like Comic-Con during the summer to, you know, mm-hmm. to, to help try to put more viewers there and to build on it. It was just kind of, uh, you know, unfortunately I think it was, it was, this is, I feel like all the decisions have probably been made by then to mm-hmm. not you know, try to build it. But I think that you're right. If, if, you know, given the chance to, to uh to lay the foundation for your story and to get people in the tent then hopefully people stick around and and you just keep adding to that netflix is a beast these days they pick up something and put it in front of their multitude of viewers and it can be a game changer for some shows absolutely so uh mickey now is your chance uh you know we've got people listening would you like to tell us where you would have gone with the story had you had another season uh, yeah, you know, I can talk a little bit about, I think, Thompson, Georgie, and I, we had met a few times and, and sat with our our uh, writer's assistant, uh, or our, our executive assistant, Romy, who had been through the whole first season, and, um, and we just started sort of talking about some ideas. You know, some of the stuff we'd planned at the end of the season where it was going to be, you know, Mara, this sort of alternate version, and we called her Alt-Mara, huh. still stuck in Reverie when they read Very fringe. The system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 one of the things that we really wanted to do was, you know, rather than tell like an evil Mara story, uh, something like that, we wanted to ba- basically like a version of Mara that was in Reverie wouldn't really remember who she was. And so it would have been a journey for her inside the program to to, to find out who she, who she really was. And, and she would have come across uh, Oliver, who um, who was one of the people who had originally helped build the program and who had who caused a lot of the problems for uh, for Jessica Lou's character, um, who would realize that she didn't really remember who she was and kind of use her to his advantage. Um, and, and really what we were kind of building toward was she's having her own experience. She is Mara. She is her Mara's consciousness, and she's gradually coming to this remembrance of who she is and all the things that happened to her. And then you have real Mara in the outside world who was who – was, finding her way you know back inside and finding her way to this mara and the question is which one who's the real one who gets to go back and live that life you oh, know and, and 
Yeah, oh snap, right? <laughs> um, and and who was you know is one of them going to sacrifice for the other one? Like the, you know, once the real one learns, remembers who, or once the Altmar remembers who she is, and knows that life has been going on without her in the real world. Meanwhile, this other real Mar has been out there like living her life and friends and and, and you know loved ones and all that sort of thing. She's going to want to get back to that. And how is that going to like uh, come to fruition? But we've had stories for all the main characters. I mean, I think we. We had talked about um, the story, you know, the big reveal at the end of the first season was that the program was really functioned like, you know, like we talk, always talk about like the Spotify algorithm where it's like, you like this thing? Well, here's 10 more things just like it. <laughs> uh, this while the reverie program is kind of reading you, it's surfacing the stuff that you really need to deal with. And the revelation of that is something that Sindel's character was really going to for himself. Okay, it unearthed this thing in Mara. What are the things I don't know that's holding me back that I can unearth with the program? Mm. How can I really? push that to the limit and, and surface something for myself that may have been hidden all the time. It's going to lead to some really surprising things about his character. Um, and so we, uh, we were going to, yeah, so we had a lot of kind of stuff like that planned. And, and I, I think that we would have been able to really get into some stories that were different than anything else that was on TV at the time because of that. So you had just mentioned, you know, Netflix before, oh, by the way, that, that sounds fascinating. I, I wish we could have seen that. Um, there's a show currently on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it, but you definitely should. It's called Memories of the Alhambra. It's no, a Korean cool. drama, and it's actually somewhat similar um, to Reverie. Um, it is about, and I won't get too much into it, but basically it's about this investor from Korea who meets a kid who is a video game designer, and the kid claims that he's designed an augmented reality video game that seamlessly blends reality with this game world that he's created. So the investor goes to meet this kid in Granada, Spain, and he starts playing the game, but he can't find the creator anywhere. So it's this dual story, this dual analog, where he's trying to track down the creator, where did he disappear to, and he's experiencing this incredible game. But the thing is, there's a lot more to the game than he thought. Mm. And just like with Reverie, um, people, you know, sort of maybe getting trapped in their own worlds, you know, things from within the world being brought out into real life, what's real, what's not. It deals with all those things and it does it in a really, really interesting way. So you should definitely check that out. Yeah, yeah definitely. It sounds awesome. Yeah. You know, like that is the sort of key to these kind of stories, I think, you know, with virtual worlds and augmented worlds and stuff. It's, it's like it's so much about real world stakes. In, and real consequences because if you know when you're going into this virtual world there have to be consequences or things that that resonate in the real world people have to be in danger people have to be um otherwise there's really like sort of no tension and we were constantly right. that, that was one of the constant problems in reverie was trying to balance that out like you know you can't have somebody like coding in a coma every week <laughs> <laughs> but he wanted to have you know there be some danger for you know for uh to, to really drive mara's need Right. It just made me think of the episode where um, the kid was being held hostage in a room, sitting on a chair. I yeah. thought that was that whole episode was like a step above for me. I just thought it was really cool. You went really deep. You made us think. I didn't know how it was going to end, you know. And I kind of wondered: Do you have favorite episodes? Are there ones that stand out to you more for any particular reason? You know, I think. Well, to, to, to riff on that for a second, I think that really came about because we did a lot of thinking about and reading about, like, how would people use this technology? How would different people use it? And so there was one episode earlier where the guy was using it to, like, plan a heist. Yeah. Right. Um, mapped out the whole thing, right? And so um, 
So that is something sort of in reading about like how people might use virtuality, virtual reality. The one of the things was about how companies might use it to train employees. And so they would put you in the virtual space in the virtual warehouse and you would learn where things are and you would do certain, you know, safety training and stuff. It would be like, you know, how you have to watch those like safety videos and stuff. Well, the future that might be in virtual reality. And, uh, and so one of the things we were looking at was like, well, how might the government use this? And then the idea of like a virtual black site, you know, that like that they could claim like, look, we're not actually torturing the person. <laughs> how wouldn't the government use it? Right. That's what makes it so funny. Cause once the episode happened, you're like, duh, of course, someone's going to take this well-intentioned thing that had no bad thing behind it. And someone else is going to take it and flip that script right the opposite way. And I think that, I mean, that when I pitched the show, that was like, and, and from the creation on and through the pitching of it, the thing that excited me was like, there are so many different ways that people can use this and how can we explore like all the people from all these different walks of life and how they would. And that was one of them. Um, yeah. but I, the one of the, my favorite ones, and it really was one that I think a lot of us, um, when we finally got to it and, and saw it play out was, uh, um, we were like, Oh, the template for like what the sort of like classic episode would be was the dancer, the ballerina. Um, because you know, it was always sort of a struggle to find like, get people audiences to connect with the person and to make them a, you know, a sympathetic hero of their own story. Um, and so this, you know, this woman who had been a ballet dancer who was now in a wheelchair. Um, and so Mara's first instinct, her first thought is, Oh, this is all about her losing her ability to walk and to dance and being in the wheelchair. And then once she gets into it, no, there's this deeper reveal that notes it's about this whole other thing. And, um, and so that one, I was felt like, Oh, that's, that's, we did that one really well and and uh, you know created an emotional need for it for the program that was that was unique i love that you reminded me of that episode because it really it was just it's so human to take things at surface value for i mean that's you can't we do it sometimes to defend ourselves we do it just to get by our day but it's it's so human to take things just at first face value what they seem like and then it just hits you in the feels when you get yep. to the <laughs> the real reason. Well, and that was, I mean, that was, that was Mars job through the whole series is to like dig down through those layers and to find the thing that's really going on. And ultimately that's what she had to do for herself by the end too. You know, now that you mentioned that she was almost like a program herself, you know, like if, if the whole show were a program, she would have a function where she brings the human aspect back into that program. Really interesting. Yeah, that's like a that's like a great origin story for the Matrix. <laughs> like all those characters in the Matrix, they were programs, you know, like the Oracle and the and the, so the the empathizer the empathizer program that came comes out right. If exactly. the Wachowskis were down to do a prequel story, I would watch it. <laughs> yeah, uh, me too. It's, it's like my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any more strain que- or excuse me, uh, reverie questions, Alex? Um, hmm. <laughs> Any more reverie questions? Um, no, I, I think I'm, I think I got a, oh, you know, let me, let me check my list. We got a list of reverie <laughs> questions for you. Uh, well, we got, we have a list of questions, I should say. Well, um, I mentioned that because you touched on the strain just for a second, and I feel like we'd be remiss not to go back a little bit and allow you to expand on that because it's such a, it feels random in your uh, repertoire. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a little bit of an outlier. <laughs> How does a writer end up doing just one episode for a show? Well, yeah. I did the whole final season of it, but I only oh. I, 
I wrote one episode of that final season. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I think you know they were uh, they were looking for writers. They were they were heading into this final season. There was a whole idea that they'd been building up to, where they're really kind of turning the world on its head. And so um, I went in for a meeting with uh, with Carlton Hughes and his executive Lindsay Springer, who had been one of the uh, original uh, executives on uh, Amblin executives on uh, Accent. And so I've been wanting to work for Carlton for a long time. A huge fan of his, and huge fan of Guillermo del Toro, of course. Um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a really great experience. I, I'd say it was like terrifying at first because there were three seasons of the show to, to sort of binge before I jumped into the room. Mm. And I was doing that really quickly before we started. And so <laughs> I felt like one thing like, okay, this is the night that I get fired. <laughs> It'll be like a nice phone call. It's like, hey, start like settle down and kind of like relax and do it and have a lot of fun. Um, David Weddle and Bradley Thompson, who had written on the whole run of Battlestar Galactica great shows and they were just awesome guys and um liz pong she uh, just wrote for the haunting hill house was yeah. a really great runner jeff wadlow who made kick-ass too and really really interesting people paul keebles who wrote the season of mars by the way um and yeah it was just a really it was a really interesting time and then of course i got the, the coolest part of it was i got to go up to toronto and prep two episodes. And the downside of it was it was in Toronto in January, like for three weeks in January, so it was cold and rainy the whole time. But I got to go up there and be with that crew, and and it was right around the time that uh, Guillermo was uh, posting uh, The Shape of Water. And so I was kind of like hearing a lot of buzz about that, and I was like, the, the, the Strain Riders parking spot was right next to the GDT parking spot. So I thought that was really cool, so I was like constantly taking pictures of one of them. This is where he parks his car. <laughs> Um, I love how he's so GDT did, too. And where did the fish man park his car, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that, well, he had a sub that he uh, like nearby. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was an awesome experience. I like. I just love the show, and I thought I love the combination of like the sort of classic pulp uh, stories and the sort of you know the archetypes and the you know the vampire hunters and the and yeah all that great stuff. I thought they just did a really cool job of that. You know, one of my favorite things about The Strain is the character of Quinlan. You know, he was so mysterious and so cool, and he really, really, really needs his own spinoff series. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we, people talked about that a lot. And I'm sure you look, I would not be surprised if that happened. But I have to say, too, like seeing that guy in person in the makeup is intimidating. <laughs> right. I went on set one day, and he, it was a scene where they were, sh- he was shooting this, like, Uzi, his Uzi up into a missile silo. And, uh, and so I went on the set to watch a few of the takes and, to, and just to hang out for a bit. And, and he comes walking over with that thing and the eyes and it's just like, you, you feel like you're looking at the character and not the actor at that point. It was amazing. Wow. Yeah. I think, I think that character personally should be in like every show, like just yeah. make a cameo like Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a little bit of a different genre for you. Um, what are some other genres that you'd be interested in playing with? Because you've done a lot of, you know, sci-fi now. You haven't done hard sci-fi yet. We'd love to ask you about that. But what are some other, you know, non-science fiction genres that you'd, you know, like to write in? You know, I love westerns and I love crime fiction. So both of those are two two genres that I, I would love to, to be able to work in. I'm a musical theater guy. So at some point I would like to make musical. Um and I'm not sure exactly if it would be a science fiction musical or, or how that would happen. Um, but I, but so I, I do love those. I'm a huge comedy fan. It's funny because half the stuff that I watch at home are, 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 are all comedy. Like really? 
love Broad City. I love there's so many great shows like comedy shows that I love. Uh, Crazy Ex Girlfriend is like sort of the next. It's like that isn't. I'm in the middle of Venn diagram of like you know musical theater, comedy, uh, all this. I'm a huge fan of that show, and I love those those creators in general. And so yeah, so I, I'm interested in all that stuff. But it's interesting, you know, once you sell something and and that kind of becomes your zone. Right. Wow. And it really does take a big shift um, to, to kind of push out of that. So I feel like if I really wanted to get out of the science fiction zone, I would have to write a show, write a Western. That was that was really great. They got enough attention that they would let me do it. A steampunk sci-fi Western. That's so oh, fine yeah. to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. My dream was always to do a steampunk Dracula, like a real steampunk. So I, I, had, I had done this version of Dracula on stage at this theater in Kentucky called Jenny Wiley Theater. And we did almost like a, a little bit of like a cyberpunk version of it Ooh. where we had this cool industrial score and sort of like modern punk cyberpunkish kind of uh, costumes blended and neon lights and things. Um, but I always really wanted to do like the steampunk version of that where, you know, the Renfield had like the goggles and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, um, wild, wild West. <laughs> they kind of touched on that a little bit with NBC's Dracula. Oh, I didn't see that one. Oh um, yeah. So it was a bit of a different twist. Uh, people didn't, like it that much ratings wise but basically dracula was this inventor and he was trying to push new technologies and so he was the fringe mad scientist and you know he was also a vampire but people were really afraid of him and they because he was different because he pushed those you know scientific ideas so they they focused a lot on kind of steampunk elements while not necessarily going too much into the steampunk aesthetic it was interesting yeah that is interesting it's like they were doing a little bit of like frankenstein slash yeah dr jekyll slash Trying to, trying to do all the above. Yeah. yeah. But the audience wasn't ready for it. Uh, <laughs> well, if you ever do go that path, uh, I think you'll have to cast previous NERC guest Tom Allison. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Do you watch Killjoys? Uh, no, I haven't seen it yet. I'm well, sorry. I highly recommend. We seem to have some similar taste. Highly recommend. He plays a character called Pre. Uh, he's yeah. fantastic and can also sing. <laughs> so... Uh, I- <laughs> I will absolutely look him up. Yeah, that's been on my list for a while. I just I haven't caught it yet. Uh, the same thing happened to me. And the second I started watching it, I said, why haven't I been watching this for three years already? <laughs> so, yeah, we uh, we mentioned we'd love to ask you um, if you, you know, I'm so curious about what your vision of the future would be like. Because, you know, as you were saying, you know, you, you read Wired, you read the Digest and, you know, all three of your series have been about the technology that's going to push us into that future. So if you were to do a hard sci-fi series, you know, something set way in the future, maybe on another planet, maybe on a post-apocalyptic planet, maybe on the current planet, <laughs> where, where, where would Mickey Fisher's future world take us? Would everybody be singing? What's what's going on in your head? <laughs> well, they would definitely be, there would definitely still be music, that's for sure. You know, it's a, it's a tough question because I read this book recently that it's called Homo Deus. It's by this guy, uh, I think Noah Yuval Harari or Yuval Noah Harari. He wrote this book called Sapiens as well. And he had this really interesting concept, which was like the, that, that you know, the, our extinction really isn't going to come, prob- probably isn't going to come like a lot of science fiction writers think of sort of like this artificial intelligence, you know, the robots turning against us and wiping us out. But rather it's going to be that we do it ourselves in increments along the way by augmenting ourselves, by starting to do what people like Elon Musk are talking about, like oh. merge brains with machines and things like that. That was literally the plot of um, Dan Brown's latest book. Was it really? Yeah. 
I got to check that out. But uh, yeah, but it's kind of like the idea is, you know, he was saying that he got this one really interesting thought, which is that, you know, eventually there will be this new species that we've, that we've created, that we were sort of like uh, evolved ourselves into this new thing. And that, um, you know, like what would music be to that new being? It might be totally different than what it is to us or, you know, like, um, how would they use certain tools that we have? How would they, how would they use, uh, genetic engineering, uh, to, to create, they were, they were going to be thinking on a whole different like level than we are. And so it's kind of almost hard to even envision what that would be. I would say that like in my version, I right where we are right now, and it's with all the things happening in the world, that when I dream about those things, I tend to dream in utopias as opposed to dystopias. I yeah. uh, so want to see a world where we've solved energy problems and that we have, that we've come together to, to save the planet from, uh, you know, like the effects of climate change. Uh, we've really dealt with like the widespread income inequality in the world and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I think that, so I'm, to me, when I'm sort of kicking back dreaming about what that world might be, it's, it's, it's much more utopian, uh, Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. the sort of like, uh, you know, everybody's scavenging in the wasteland for for fuel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would I would love to see that because there have been so many dystopian sci-fi series uh, yeah. and it's a really cool world, you know, because it in itself, it creates tension and it's it's very core to humanity because it's set in the future, but it's dealing with problems we've you know dealt with in the past. But if you've ever seen a movie like Elysium, you know, where it is dystopian, you've got that utopia on top and the dystopia on the bottom. What would it be like if you just dealt with the utopia and all the problems that they had there? Would it be like the 3%, but only about the 3% and nobody else? You know, it's interesting because even perfect, technologically perfect people have problems, I imagine. Well, that becomes, I think that becomes the problem. Like, do you get bored? Do you, <laughs> do you start to crave a little anarchy and, you know, like, uh, that could be its own problem. Like, everything's a little too perfect. We need to dirty it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, in the future when Netflix rules the world, right? Yeah, exactly. Netflix and Amazon <laughs> and Google together. Right. That's going to be the new name for Earth. It'll be a combination of both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll create like a couple's name, but for companies. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's funny. I feel like if you were going to do your uh, future world, do you know that instrument that Bjork has? I think there's only like two or three of them in the world, like super crazy futuristic, and she uses her whole body to create the sounds. No, I gotta look that up. What is it? I wish like I could whole- remember what the name of it was. I can't. I'm sure I could Google it real quick, but I feel like that would be. You could probably create a whole show out of that. <laughs> oh, is, I thought you were gonna talk about the one that's like that I've seen people where it's almost like a guitar neck, but at the bottom of it, there's this little like sphere that has a face on it, and so they kind of squeeze it like a little mouth, and it it seems it's very strange. I don't know what the name of it is, but like I I went down a whole YouTube rabbit hole one night. <laughs> well, that is impossible to visualize. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know it's fascinating. It's like it's a really interesting sound. She would just fit right in on any sci-fi uh, series, yeah. wouldn't she? She is. I think she's from the future. Yeah, quite possibly. Fair assessment. <laughs> so, um, what are you know? You mentioned you you watch a lot of comedies, but um, what are some you know dramas from this past season that, from a storytelling perspective, just really stood out for you? I mean, the Americans is I think one of the best. Uh, the Americans by the end was like one of the best shows on television in the last ten years. I love Game of Thrones. I'm a huge fan of that. The Leftovers is one of my all time favorite shows now. Uh, I love Better Call Saul. I'm kind of one of those people now that's like. 
it's it ranks at least even with Breaking Bad for me at this point in terms of uh, wow. Those. Yeah, so I, I you know I watch a lot of those. I'm uh, trying to think what else is out there. We, oh, my girlfriend and I we just we just watched the second season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh my god, that <laughs> so might be. No Zoomed offense. All the awards it got. That, that, right. that might be the greatest show ever made. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it really is. It's very special. And I think, I, and I love the, I love Amy Sherman Palladino in general. I was a big fan of Bunheads, which is the one where it's like, if I could snap my fingers and bring that one back, like that's one that I would want to bring back immediately. That is the most um, surprising show you have mentioned thus far. And I think it's adorable. <laughs> right? <laughs> Me too. Because I'm the action guy. You know, I watch everything from the Punisher to the Punisher to John Wick back to the Punisher and Marvelous yeah. Miss Maisel. That's just, that's my future. You know, hard sci-fi in the future. Everything looks like. Marvelous Miss Maisel. I love it. That's great. That's your utopia. Is go yes, back to- because color-coded aliens with color-coded hats wearing color-coded coats. Oh, my God. Right. Talk <laughs> about their life in a quippy, quippy, fast fashion. Well, and that yes. one has uh, Emma Dumont in it from The Gifted. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, she's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's interesting because it's one of those shows that to me because i think it was if it felt so real for like what it is like to be a teenager even though i wasn't a teenage girl um but i think that also the sort of uh camaraderie they got from being in that in that class the other in that troop was like what i felt doing shows when i was in high school and so it just so there was something about it that just felt very authentic real. I mean, i love Sutton foster so um so yeah i i really i really love that one um but yeah marvelous mrs Maisel is one that i think is with you know the the dialogue and like the recreation of the time period and um you know Tony Shalhoub it's like it just, it just doesn't get any better than that and the guy play who plays Lenny's like every time that guy oh, comes he's so good that, I want to see right? that series of just a, a Lenny Bruce with that actor his life and times in the uh, in comedy you know I you was, think you're right oh. he did such a good job they could absolutely spin off with just him yeah, yeah. and I I believe the character he's playing was a real character and yeah. that's how he sounded. Oh yeah, yeah. You can watch those if you go on YouTube. You can watch all those old videos of Lenny Bruce, and it's 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 pretty uncanny. Yeah. There is uh, one question we like to ask all of our guests, and I realize um, being behind the camera, you don't always get the same onslaught as some of the main actors do. But I know you've been to Comic Con. I know people know who you are. <laughs> do you have a favorite fan interaction that's happened with anyone? You know, um, I'll give you two because I think there's one that's like. There's one that's sort of a different. Uh, I, there's been two different categories, but I think in terms of just like person on the, you know, person from Comic Con coming up out of the crowd and talking about the show. Um, when I was uh, at the uh, WonderCon with Reverie, we just shown the pilot, and you know, there's this whole thing. The whole story of the pilot is this guy who brings his wife back, you know, basically recreates his wife digitally, and that, uh, and because he wants to spend more time with her and wants to, there's unfinished business there. And uh, and then there was a person who came up to me afterwards, a young woman who, who was sort of in tears and said, you know, like I just lost someone, and it just, you know, if I would give anything to to you know to bring that person back, and and uh, and I was like crying on the floor, you know, like <laughs> in the in the hall, you know, like oh, you know, oh, no. so it was so great, um, and that so that was really great because it also let me know that like this is going to hopefully hit people on an emotional level, which is really like the biggest thing that you can hope for. Um, but then the other one from Exit was super cool was, uh, I got a phone call from, 
uh, or an email from somebody who uh, was representing uh, Dr. Mae Jemison, the astronaut. And she had been a big fan of Extant, and she was doing this convention um, where she brings a bunch of people together to talk about what it would take to build a generation starship. And she wanted to send me an invite to, to, to that convention to be on a panel with her. And so I went up to, to, uh, to Northern California and I got to go to this convention and sit in with a bunch of, you know, real life astronauts and, and, uh, people who were talking about what it's going to take to build a generation starship one of these days, uh, and to actually meet her. And she's one of those people who's just so inspiring and, uh, and, and, and we sat down before the panel, you know, like in between things. And she was kind of like, uh, just sort of tell me what was going on. And she was like, I just really want to tell you, like, I really, you know, I really love the show and, and Hallie and Sue. So, uh, so that was very cool. Oh, I love that. You, it's, um, you have a astronaut famous fans, like not your yeah. typical famous yeah. fan, but <laughs> uh, and she ended up being part of, uh, uh, Mars too. Like they got her and she, she was one of the talking heads and, uh, in Mars. She's, she is super cool. I mean, especially since, of course, every screenwriter has a, a background that's more than just writing, but science and technology and uh, things like this really relate. And so it's, it's extra super cool. And as a very side note, you've made me feel not so bad about not even being able to talk to Lana Wachowski when I saw her because I was crying so hard. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No, I would have been, been the same. I would have definitely been like... Yeah, something so bad and I can't. And her white Karen was trying to ask me a question. I was like, uh, and I just sort of handed over the gifts and like ran away. <laughs> what were the gifts? So I make little lapel pins and stuff and I do a bunch for Sensei. Oh. So I put one of each that I've made to give to Lana for, for the Sensei. I love that one too. That one, that one is one that's just like, like all their stuff was sort of inspiring in the way that it just pushes the boundaries of storytelling. You know, it's like you're, you know, you're really kind of stuck in these sort of like that has to have a beginning, middle, and end, and and here's where you're act one, and the, here's the midpoint, and this, and it really was like not not as much about that. Like there were these long movements of all these people who were interconnected, and it was just like this almost a more like sensory and emotional experience at times, and that was uh, that was really exciting. Absolutely, they definitely played the long game with their storyline, which I don't think we got to see the fruition of the completeness of it, but you know, at least we got what we got. <laughs> so, Mickey. <laughs> Thank you so much for, you know, talking with us. I think you've given us some really fantastic and super interesting information. Um, before we wrap up, uh, you know, would you like to plug anything? Your Twitter, your blog, you know, let people know what resources they have available um, because you have some really great resources. Thanks. You know, I appreciate that. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having me on. It's been so much fun. Uh, I think, you know, my Twitter handle is MickeyFisher73. And uh, pinned to the top of that are a couple are those documents we talked about. So if somebody wants to you know look at those uh, those articles on pitching, you know, writing and pitching X and Reverie, those are pinned to the top of my Twitter feed, and uh, you can find me there. But other than that, I'm just sort of working on new stuff, and I've been out pitching some new things and sold some stuff that I can't really talk about yet. But uh, so there's nothing really to plug except for that. Um. Well, okay, you can't talk about it, but there has to be something you can tell us. You know, I will say that we, there have been, I can tell you this, uh, it falls squarely into some of the conversations we've had over the course of this past hour, uh, <laughs> space travel, future earth utopias. And that so sort Quinlan of is in it. <laughs> and a badass, uh, yeah, space traveling uh, vampire. He's still alive in the future, you know. 
Yeah, he's exactly. not dying. Exactly. Yeah. And when will we get um, a more expanded explanation of said future works? Man, I hope it's, I, mean, I hope the news will hit sometime soon. I, I'm not sure how soon this podcast will uh, will premiere, but I think the news in the next few weeks. I'm hoping. Ooh. I thought we'll I'll, I'll 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 double back and we'll 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 do a, a post mortem. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll tag it we'll add uh once if we have the ability to share with folks what it is we will tag the link on this po- podcast when it goes up on twitter excellent yeah thank you so much thanks, yeah guys. you're awesome mickey thanks a bunch have a good one take care great day thanks for listening to another nurks podcast rate us leave us a review on itunes and follow us on twitter at nurks of the hub and let us know what you think 